Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Good morning, Grantham Church. As always, great to see you in worship this morning. Thank you, Pastor Dave and worship team. Our children are invited to kids on worship at this time. If you want to do that, or you can remain in here with us for the conclusion of our Advent series, The Anticipated Christ. Uh, this has been a three-part series. In this first message, we looked at Genesis chapter 3, where we reflected on the fall of humanity, our sin, and Satan's role in this cosmic battle between good and evil. We reflected on our brokenness and the realities of our troubled world and why we cannot save ourselves. So we need to let that sink in. We need to let that sink in. We need a Savior. Last Sunday, we were reminded that God is judging our world right now in what is called the present evil age. And his wrath, which we're to leave room for, Paul told us, looks like God giving people over to the consequences of their sins, uh, reaping what they sow. This is what Paul said to the Galatians. Therefore, we can trust in God's wisdom and we can trust in his power right now to right the wrongs of the world. Of course, it's not in this fallen world that all the wrongs will be set right, which is why we need to remember that there are two comings in Advent that we, we celebrate and we reflect on this time of year. Jesus first came to reveal who God is, to inaugurate the kingdom, to show us how to live, and to confront the powers of sin and death by dying and rising again. But he then commissioned his disciples to share this good news until he returns to bring the fullness of God's kingdom, which includes a final judgment. So in this final message of our three-part series, I want to invite us to see the end of our story, according to the Bible, to see the end of our story so that we can experience a living hope while we work out our salvation and actively wait, actively wait on the coming of the King. We began this series in Genesis with the first book of the Bible. And so to close this trilogy of messages, let's go to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. You can grab your Bible or open it up on a smartphone or there's a pew Bible in front of you and just begin to turn there to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And while you're doing that, I want to just give you a little bit of background and context to the book of Revelation, because I think we probably all come with different ideas and assumptions about this bizarre book. Revelation is known as apocalyptic literature. That is, it is a, a poetic, imaginative style of writing that is packed with symbolism, intending to reveal and disclose what was previously hidden or unknown, what was sort of behind the curtain spiritually so that we can see 
we can see with spiritual eyes, to give us a heavenly perspective on our earthly circumstances. And so that every generation who reads this book would be comforted, would be challenged, and given hope for the future. So we'd know where our salvation really comes from. And so how can we know what this symbolic uh, language is referring to? What do the symbols mean? Well, we need to know our Bible. <laughs> we need to know our Bible because there are tons of allusions to the Old Testament within the book of Revelation. There are images, there are patterns, and of course the, the cultural context sheds light on what John was intending to communicate by what he saw in this, in this apocalypse. So we need to be careful, you know, trying to immediately connect dots to current events or, or saying, oh, the beast with lots of heads shooting out fire as a Black Hawk helicopter or something like this. We need to understand the book of Revelation the way in which the first century audience would have understood it. This is a vision, an apocalypse, again, is, is an unveiling to see what's behind the curtain, and it's given to the apostle John, the latter part of his life, probably in the late first century, and it begins by him being transported into God's throne room in heaven. So think about it. it's God removes the curtain between heaven and earth, and John peers in through a spiritual vision to see what is happening around the throne of God. This is where Revelation begins in the first few chapters. And there he sees when he, he peers upon the throne room of God, he sees a lamb, a lamb that has been slain. In fact, he hears a voice tell him, look, the line of the tribe of Judah, expecting to see a line, he sees a lamb, right? The, the, the king of the universe is a slain lamb upon a throne who reveals to him the things to come. Now, I know we see a lot of violence and we see destruction in the book of Revelation, but if we look carefully, we can see that God, as we saw last Sunday, is simply handing humanity over to her own self-destruction. Where we see Jesus presented in your typical warrior king fashion, if we look more closely, we can see that Jesus isn't actually doing any violence, but rather his strength and victory and that of his, his people comes through his death and resurrection. And his final judgment on evil comes through his sacrifice and through his spoken word. So let's go to the book of Revelation, chapter 19, beginning with verse 11 to start us off. Revelation chapter 19, beginning with verse 11, and then we're going to skip over to chapter 21. John says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. 
He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making everything new. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A couple of weeks ago, I watched this documentary on Netflix. It was called A Trip to Infinity. Has anybody else seen this documentary by any chance? Oh, wow. Okay, so you can go watch it now. This show explores the concept of infinity, and uh, it's, it's really well done. It, it talks about what infinity is, how it works, and where we can find it. Uh, through creative animation and bits of interviews with theoretical physicists, uh, particle physicists, mathematicians, uh, theoretical cosmologists, and I believe there was one philosopher, and I was honestly surprised that they included him in the mix. The documentary explores the mind-bending reality of infinity, and it points out the futility of trying to understand this paradox within nature. Now, as I I said, you you should watch it. I enjoyed it up until a certain point. There's mystery and there's wonder and you're like, wow. And and of course, if you've grown up in the church and you're a religious person, your thoughts quickly go to who? (laughs) To God. And isn't it strange that no one ever mentions God? And it's increasingly obvious that they weren't going to talk about God. You know, it's sort of like nobody talks about Bruno, you know, but, but it's God. I, what's happening? Again, it's, it seems so obvious that you would go there, but they, they don't. There's only one person who mentions God. Um, I'm trying to remember, I think it may have been the philosopher But then they're like, but if there is a God, he's unknowable. And that's it, and they move along. So they weren't gonna consider metaphysics. They're not gonna go to the transcendent. They're not gonna consider theological perspectives or spiritual phenomena that are very real in the world. You know, and this show is representative of how naturalism has created an artificial ceiling. Think about that image, an artificial ceiling ceiling. When all you have is the stuff down here, we could call it again naturalism, this naturalistic framework, 
And when that's all you have is this naturalistic framework and toolbox, you must come to narrow reductionist conclusions. You, you've left God completely out of the equation. Well, you're going to get a certain result, a very, a very naturalistic result. And of course, my biggest disappointment in the show was the ending. Uh, I can see my wife back there. She could probably tell you how disappointed I was because I verbally expressed it. She was sitting in the chair, not paying attention to what I was doing. But. And that was when they get to the point where they talk about where the universe is headed, right? The future of the universe. Probably billions of years from now, they say, the universe is going to wind down and it's going to eventually come to particles floating around in cold, dead space. And that's it. And one of the scientists says this rather gleefully with, you know, again, some wonder, but it's like, you know what? I didn't know what it was like to not exist and I won't know what it's like to not exist again. So what? Now, I'm not satisfied with that answer. And, and I hope that you're not. You see, when, when a naturalist view of space and time is all you have, the way I see it, you really have two options. Number one, despair. <laughs> Number two, a happy nihilism. Yeah, I, I didn't know what it was like to not exist, and one day I won't exist, and <laughs> life's great. A happy nihilism. This just won't do for the people of God. There's, there must be more, right? I mean, this doesn't make sense to create this artificial ceiling. And so I think that there are problems with this. You know, what's interesting, what's interesting is that some of them talked about love. But what is love without God? What is love without a moral lawgiver and one who's created us in his image? Some social Darwinist will tell you love is simply utilitarian, right? It's simply something that we do so that we can propagate the species. There's no deeper meaning in it. Well, that really sucks the life out of your relationships, doesn't it? And the way that you feel about your children, you know, it's just a way that we can propagate the species, that's all. And in this view, if you really stop and consider it, it seems like everything is truly meaningless. And good and evil, that is morals and values, they're not objectively real, it's just whatever a culture decides to create again to further the species. And there's ultimately, this is where I'm gonna tie it back into our series here, there's ultimately no justice. There's no justice. There's no justice in this life because this life is it and the universe doesn't give a flying flip. The universe doesn't care. Again, my question to you, is that all right with you? Do we think that that's true? Because more and more people seem to be embracing this. But from a biblical view and a gospel perspective, the God who is love created the world with his imprint of truth, of beauty, of love and justice, and he will not abandon his creation. And this is good news. Rather, Christ will come a second time to judge the world and release it from its bondage to decay. Yes, if naturalism was all we had, surely, yes, billions of years from now, that's what would happen. But that's not all we've got. 
we have the Lord who will not forsake his creation. The New Testament tells us about the return of Christ and says that Jesus will return. Jesus himself said this, that he will return suddenly, right? Nobody knows the day or the hour, so forget trying to guess, but so many people have tried to do. I remember that book back in the 80s, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. In 1989, that book stopped selling, as you would expect. But Jesus said that it it would happen. He said, I don't know. The Father knows that date. And he would bring the fullness of the kingdom when that happened. Jesus will then come and judge our motives and judge our deeds. He'll judge our gospel work. This is where he says he'll separate the sheep from the goats. The angels also told the disciples that Jesus will come again. You remember at his ascension, Jesus disappears from their sight. And and they say, why are you just standing there dumbfounded looking into the sky? You need to get busy. (laughs) Jesus gave you something to do. He gave you a great commission. And the same way you saw him go, the angel says he will return. Right? He will return. There'll be an appearing. That is a reversal of his disappearing. And it'll be both a spiritual and a physical reality. The apostles, they use metaphors to describe his literal return, mixing metaphors even. A very well-known passage is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, This is the passage where a lot of folks try to get a rapture idea from. I don't ascribe uh, to that view of eschatology. What I actually think Paul is doing there in 1 Thessalonians 4, around verse 16 or so, is mixing metaphors. He has an image of of Moses. Like when Jesus comes back, it'll be like Moses coming down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. And what does Moses discover when he comes down the mountain with the Ten Commandments? That some of his people are worshiping a golden calf. He also says it'll be like a king or a Caesar who returns from war victorious to come back into his city and the people will go out to meet him. And then what do they do? They parade him back to the city. And of course, Paul uses this language of sky and clouds because clouds represent divinity. Now, none of this is meant to be taken literally as so many Christians have done and really robbed us of the truth and the power of what Paul is saying here when he tries to describe what is a mystery to all of us. But based on what Jesus said, Paul says, it would be like Moses coming back down the mountain. It'll be like a Caesar going out and the people parading him back to his city to reign and to rule. Isn't that beautiful? The symbols and the metaphors are meant to depict Again, this coming mystery, as we saw in some of the image, imagery earlier in Revelation 19. Notice in the vision that we read of the final battle, Jesus, who is also the slain lamb, comes on a white horse, which symbolizes holiness. He has many crowns, which would in the ancient world indicate that he rules over all the nations. He has fire coming from his eyes, meaning that he sees all things. He holds a golden scepter to symbolize the strength of his rule. And don't miss this, his robe is covered in blood before the battle even begins because it's his own blood shed on the cross. 
Again, images that are not meant to be taken literal, but they're sort of the Hollywood special effects language of the Bible to communicate a powerful and yet literal truth, even though the images aren't meant to be taken as such. And his only weapon, did you notice, is a sword coming out of his mouth. And it's not because he's a a magician. (laughs) You've seen people do that. No, the sword coming out of his mouth would, you remember a sword would normally be on the thigh of a warrior. Instead, we see it as a sash, or maybe we could say a heavenly tattoo that reads King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is his weapon, is his word. How many times we've seen that imagery used in the Bible, the the word of God is like a double-edged sword that pierces joint and marrow, that sees all things, that divides up what is true from what is false and what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is evil. This is what Jesus is coming to do. And his army is made up of all the saints who have been washed clean by his blood and are ready to reign with him in the new heaven and the earth. So it's not Jesus doing the violence. We are the ones that have done the violence, even to the Son of God. But he takes it all upon himself with our sin on the cross, takes it to the grave, and that's where he leaves it. Remember, like the Revelation itself, God's judgment is ultimately this great unveiling where light exposes and pierces the darkness. And nothing is hidden with the Lord. All will be revealed. And debts are either forgiven or a person by their own rebellious wills and unrepentant hearts is given over to the hell which they have created for themselves and for the earth. And I submit to you, brothers and sisters, that this is more of a proper view of the Lord and a proper view of the judgment to come. Uh, There's an author, a book I just read, Chris Davis, his book Bright Hope for Tomorrow said this, if we think of judgment as a shining light unveiling the reality of things, then anticipating the coming of the judge can be a welcome hope rather than the stuff of nightmares. And indeed, Jesus' return as judge is all about shining the light. And Davis goes on to say, if you're truly in Christ and you trust him for salvation, then judgment is nothing to fear. Judgment, it just, it depends upon what side of the judgment you're on as to how you feel about it. The world scoffs at it. The world doesn't want it. The world says it's not going to happen. But the people of God, we feel otherwise. And Paul wrote, Again, reasons why we have nothing to fear, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've already escaped the wrath to come, the wrath that we have accrued by our own sin and by our own participation in hell upon the earth. Jesus has taken it upon himself for our own sake that we do not get what we deserve. And then two, Davis points out that focusing on Jesus as judge could, could actually set you free. It can free us from the pressure that we feel to compare ourselves to others, Dave says. From the unbearable burden of evil and injustice in the world and carrying it around or feeling like it's our responsibility or even from our own self-hatred. And I've known a few people who have done that. If we see Jesus 
properly as righteous judge. We have nothing to fear, and it can set us free. Why? Because we know that we are loved as we are and not as we should be. Because we'll never be as we should be, certainly not on this side of eternity. And so because of the love of Christ, you see, we can look at God's judgment not as retribution or payback, but as finally being set free from the effects of sin upon us. Finally being set free from sin and death where we receive total healing and become like Christ on the day of our great salvation. This is what the scriptures tell us in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 and 28. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And this salvation, church, means resurrection, not only for those who believe, but it's also, as we saw in Revelation 21, a renewal of creation through a marriage of heaven and earth. And again, don't take this, this language literally. There will be no more sea. What is that about? The sea in the ancient world was a place where the, where the monsters came from. Right? The, the sea was a tumultuous, chaotic force. So it literally doesn't mean there's not going to be any more oceans in the new heaven and earth. It simply means there's no more, more places where beasts and monsters can come from to frighten you and give you nightmares. What a beautiful image and what a message we all need to hear. Uh, you've seen me use this graphic many times before to to describe the coming together of heaven and earth. Why do we believe that this is going to happen? Well, the scriptures tell us this, but ultimately it's because of the resurrection of Jesus. You see, Jesus, who became flesh on Christmas, right, died. He lived. He died. He was put in the grave, and God raised the old, but did something new and mysterious with it. So there's continuity with the old creation, but something totally brand new. And so Jesus, his own resurrected body, tells us God is bringing heaven and earth together. The incarnation, the death and resurrection of Christ all point to this new reality. This new heaven and earth isn't return to the Garden of Eden. It is far better. Think about this. It is far better. Our bodies and our wills will be perfected in resurrection. I've heard people ask this question. If we're going back to the Garden of Eden, how do we know that we just won't start this whole process all over again? Well, what had happened to Jesus will happen to us. It is in resurrection that our wills are perfected. In resurrection, sin and death and hell will be no more. I know it's hard. It's hard for us to imagine a world like that, but I'm, I'm, I'm inviting us this morning to pay attention to the longings within. Right, when you're sitting around your Christmas tree, and if you have a young family like I do, and you, and you, you have these thoughts, and it could be, it doesn't have to be around the Christmas tree, it could be anything where you've just, you felt this feeling, right? I wish I could press pause. I wish I could live in this moment. I wish the joy never faded. Folks, this is eternity set in our hearts. This is the Lord's will bubbling up within us. God wants that. God will do that. This is our hope that one day we will perpetually live this way. This is the good news. 
So do, do you want that other news, that trip to infinity stuff, that, that naturalist worldview, or do you want this? <laughs> this is what the Lord lays before us today. This is the hope of the world. Unless we think that this is all just a big mind trip, what difference ought this to make in our own lives today? What does it look like to actively wait in anticipation for the Lord? How should our knowledge of the end influence and inspire us in the present? Well, here are a few takeaways. Real quickly, number one, see, knowing that Christ will come again and longing for His appearing empowers our faith in the following ways. One, we deepen our trust in Jesus to save us and to help us persevere. This helps us, you see, folks, to remember that when things aren't looking good in the world, we're not surprised and we're not shaken. This is why Jesus gave some of those words about the end of the age to his disciples because he didn't want them to be thrown off by it. They didn't want to think, well, where is God? And what's God doing about this? Jesus said, get ready. It's, all of these things are going to happen. Don't be surprised by it. Right? Jesus told us it would happen and that his return is not only needed for creation's liberation and our resurrection, but it has been promised. Number two, we're reminded that our gospel work isn't in vain. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Remember at the end of this great resurrection passage, that what we do really matters. Right? What we do really matters. As N.T. Wright has said, the New Testament scholar, that the world isn't going to be kicked into the cosmic trash can. We're not working a garden that will one day be paved over with concrete, so it doesn't matter what you're doing, working for justice, bringing good and beauty and love into the world. That's not what this means. Of course, it is what it means if you embrace the, the uh, naturalist framework. How could it not? How could it not? But listen to the longings within. Listen to the gospel. There's continuity between this age and the next, just as it was with Jesus' resurrected body. And so it is with our good works. Our gospel work is a signpost of that, pointing to God's salvation, saying, world, though it's fallen and broken, this is where things are headed. This is what God wants with the world. So when you give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, when you help those who are poor and in need, when you grieve with those who are grieving, when you work for a better world, you are saying, this is where creation is going. And we don't do this with some naive belief that somehow we are going to fix it. We do it anticipating the coming Christ. Amen? And then number three, you see, this is great. I love this. No matter what happens, no matter what happens, right? A, 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 an asteroid comes and ends it all, <laughs> right? Climate change, or, or, or we say climate collapse, which is what it really is, ends it all. Okay, no matter what happens, no matter what apocalyptic scary scenario you want to play out and imagine in your head, look at this. There's a happy ending to our story. There's a happy ending to our story. Evil doesn't win, love does. God's justice will come, his will will be done because Jesus said it and folks, I believe it. I believe it. He will not abandon the universe until it's nothing but a few floating particles out in cold, empty space. No, our faith tells us that the Lord will physically return 
to our three-dimensional space, which he created, and he's then going to bring all of the dimensions together into one new reality. By his word, he will judge the world. By his word, he will bring heaven and earth together at last. The same power that said, let there be light, will say, let there be a new world. God will make all things new. And folks, this is the gospel. As Jesus had said before, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though you die yet, shall you live if we trust in Christ. And I know after almost 2,000 years of waiting, and here we are in the 21st, early 21st century and living in this naturalist bubble of Western civilization. It's easy to scoff at the idea and pass it off as a bunch of religious superstition. You, you really believe that's going to happen? Jesus coming back? You know, this is why I think now more than ever, these words from Second Peter are so relevant for us today. If you turn there, 2 Peter chapter 3, last passage I'd like us to reflect on together. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 13. Peter said, above all, You must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. He's referring to the flood. He says, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. Peter is using this, again, apocalyptic language. Fire is a purifying agent to purify the world of evil, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Again, get this image in your head. Just as the floodwaters remove the evil from the earth, so will the fire, Peter says. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord, now Paul, or Peter here is using that old prophetic day of the Lord, the day of judgment, merging it now with the second coming of Christ. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Again, apocalyptic language. In verse 11, since everything will be destroyed in this way, What kind of people ought you to be? Peter says you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward, as you anticipate the day of God and speed its coming. 
That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Commenting on this passage, New Testament scholar and a former professor of mine, Peter Davids writes, the apostle Peter's listeners are to be living the life of the future age, no matter how dysfunctional it may seem in this age. For the structures of this age are temporary. We will likely be surprised at how quickly they collapse. And the structures of the coming age are permanent. Giving the massive investment of contemporary Christians and nationalism, materialism, and pleasure orientation of Western culture, this passage should serve as a wake-up call. When the day comes, one's retirement fund will not be important, but rather what one has invested in the kingdom of our sovereign Lord. Will you invest in the kingdom that is everlasting and eternal? Will you put your hope in the gospel of the anticipated Christ? That your life would find meaning beyond our momentary troubles and trials. That we wouldn't buy into a narrative that it's all just going to become dead, cold, empty space. Rather that Christ is coming again and Christ will liberate his creation. Here are a few questions to help us move from our head to our heart and from thinking to action. Would you listen to the voice of the Spirit as I ask these questions? Just how is the Lord inviting you to respond this morning? Number one, how often do you think about the return of Jesus? When you're you're scrolling through your phone, you're doom scrolling as they call it, you know? looking at all that ugly, nasty, it's all going to hell in a handbasket headlines. Do you think about the return of Jesus? Do you think about how important it is to our faith and for our world that we believe it? Number two, what would it look like if you lived with a greater anticipation of the Lord's return. Think about it. You woke up every day thinking at some point in your day, Christ is coming again. How would that impact your decision making? How would that impact the way that you spend your time? What might you do differently? What would it change? And lastly, number three, how is the Spirit inviting you to live in light of the coming of the King? The greatest desire this morning, church, is that we would hear this message and truly experience the peace, the hope, the love, and the joy that God wants to give all of us on this day. At the very least, the Spirit of God is inviting us in this season of Advent, a time when we we get in touch with our longings for the anticipated Christ to experience more of that hope, love, peace, and joy. 
Because as we say in the church, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ is coming again. Would you say that with me? Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ is coming again. Amen. Father, we, we believe it. Though others may forsake you, with your help, with your spirit, we will not forsake you. We will continue to believe even as the world shuts you out. And Lord, we'll continue to believe in love. We'll continue to believe that it is love that truly convinces a person that the way of the world leads to destruction. But the way of the kingdom, which is our future, leads to life. Lord, help us to be the people that you've called us to be. Help us, Lord, to believe in this message of hope. Transform us by it this Advent and Christmas season. That we might have new eyes to see what you're doing in the world and where you are taking creation. We love you, Jesus. And we thank you for this promise. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen.